The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by TNT and their new series, Public Morals, from creator Edward Burns. New York in the 60s had gambling, prostitution, after-hours bars, and cops to manage it. If you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. You can watch the first four episodes on TNT On Demand. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll reassess David Simon's HBO miniseries, Show Me a Hero. Plus, we'll attempt to process Hannibal's beautiful three-season-long run. This is all I ever wanted for you, Well. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, we're here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. It's a little hard to see you guys today because Matt has made this a festive edition of the, <laughs> the Vulture TV podcast. Um, if you could see us right now, we'd be in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> there are a few candles lit. <laughs> And Matt is looking very sharp in a suit and tie. It seemed the appropriate thing to wear to a discussion of the finale of Hannibal. So, yes, I busted out the suit. Gazelle and I are underdressed. We're quite underdressed. (laughs) It was an impulsive decision. I I meant to get Chianti, but uh, the liquor store that used to be right on the corner for me has suddenly closed. So we had to go with just regular old, uh, what is this? What is it, multi Puciano? Multiple Puciano, yeah. <laughs> I got another bottle another in the bottle? bag. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Although we may not bust it out at the rate we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have to go to the office after this, Matt. <laughs> I do. I, I, we have a meeting later. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going after this. <laughs> Maybe you, this is... And you better believe I'm going to be really, really emphatic. <laughs> <laughs> so if everything sounds very uh, romantic and sensual, it's because we're literally sitting in the dark drinking red wine together. Although I should, uh, the caveat with that would be that one of the candles that I brought is actually an outdoor candle that I think is designed to, you know, ward away insects. So that kills the mood just a little. (laughs) I'm into it. (laughs) So we haven't discussed this season of Hannibal since the very beginning, and a lot has changed in that time. We were introduced to the Red Dragon. We want to talk about the season as a whole, but also focus on this finale epic showdown between Will, Hannibal, and the Red Dragon, <laughs> which ends with Hannibal and Will falling off a cliff together in one another's arms. We have a clip here we'll play first. This is all I ever wanted for you, Will. For both of us. So I wanted to get your thoughts first on the dynamic between Will and and Hannibal. And I'm sorry, it's so hard to look at you in the dark. (laughs) Also, Matt is grinning. (laughs) Okay. There you go. Okay, there we go. That's much better. That's better. That was... Your eyes adjust. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. Did you see this coming in any way, shape, or form? In this particular ending, with him diving off <laughs> yeah. the cliff, I have to say I did because Brian Fuller told me the ending. Oh wow! He told me the ending when when I interviewed him, and I left that part out of the interview. I said basically, don't tell me. And then he said, "Are you sure you don't want to know?" And I said, "Oh, go ahead," because I'm really not a kind of a spoiler yeah. sort of person. Like I kind of, there are certain exceptions to where I wanted I, I want to experience what happens along with everybody else. But for the most part, I don't really care where things end up. I'm more interested in how they get there. Mm-hmm. 
and I said, yeah, go ahead and tell me. And and he was telling me in in the context of the possibility that there might be a fourth season because I wanted to know where would this thing go. Right. And the answer is, according to him, somewhere in the vicinity of that Tattler story that described them as murder husbands. Like they would be basically traveling around Europe together getting at adventures. Oh, so they would both survive. They would both survive and they would wander around and it would be like, you know... Like uh, the fugitive? Like the fugitive uh, by way of rope, I suppose. I don't know, but yeah. (laughs) Does that diverge from the actual story? Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that the ending does. Well, clearly, a lot but... of it diverges from from Thomas Harris's fiction, and I'm I'm certainly not an expert in all of the fiction in the way that a lot of the fans of the show are. But one of the things that was fun for me was watching the show and seeing how Brian Fuller and his writers and directors took things out of context and and reversed our expectations based on what we'd seen. And there were a lot of things that were taken directly from the books and a lot of nods to previous film versions like Manhunter and the 2002 version Red Dragon and Hannibal, the Ridley Scott film. But there were also a lot of things that were uh, just basically mindfucks for the audience who thought they knew what was going to happen, like Mm -hmm. killing off Chilton at that particular point in the story where you expected uh, Freddie to die. All kinds of stuff like that. Also, just the entire Italy arc, of course, is something that occurs after Silence of the Lambs, and they they lifted that out of context, and now it occurs before the events of Red Dragon, Mm -hmm. and, and somehow it all works. I mean, it's like an alternate universe version of Thomas Harris, and I have to say, in my opinion, better than the source, like richer, more sophisticated, more empathetic than the source for me. And I know there's a lot of Thomas Harris fans out there who probably don't want to hear me say that, but I vastly prefer this one-time NBC show to the sum total of Harris's fiction. I feel like it's just more humane in a weird way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Margaret, what are your thoughts on Hannibal? It's just not my show. It's just too gross for me. Yeah, and like I was trying to power through last night, and then there's that whole like the guy with like the no lips and stuff. And I was just like, oh my god! I, well, this season like, really like I could, didn't think it could get more horrifying. No, and then it did, and I'm kind of in between both of you where I don't usually have a stomach for this stuff, but I think as you've written about Matt, it it, it provokes such an emotional response that I couldn't ignore it, you know? Yeah, in a way that I can just be disgusted by other types of horror. What it reminds me of, and I and I don't like to get into too direct comparisons because every work of art is different, but it reminded me of the reaction that I have to violence in a really good Brian De Palma movie or in a lot of David Cronenberg's films, like a movie like The Fly or Dead Ringers, which are probably my two favorites of his movies, where Howard Shore's music is is just swelling and the camera is swooping in and, and you know, the blood is flowing and it just feels very operatic. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the word that describes this show. It's operatic. It's completely over the top. It's knowingly ludicrous. It's a joke, but you also are supposed to take it seriously and yet not take it seriously. And you kind of don't know how to react to it a lot of the time and that's some of my favorite works of art are like that yeah brian fuller in an interview we did with him was talking a little bit about the campy elements of this season and he's the greatest the, interview of all time he's so great he tells you like exactly what you'd hope to get from the creator yeah, and, and plus he gives you great he, detail about you know the structure I, of a three-way as yes, it pertains yes. to the fin- finale of the show like that's not something you get from right. say matthew weiner exactly and he was describing the scene where Red Dragon tears off Chilton's lips with his mouth. And he was telling the story of how he was watching it with his friends, and they're all horrified, and he's sitting there laughing and, you know, seeing the humor in the situation. I I did not find it funny, but I'm curious if either of you found humor in these completely 
over-the-top forms of violence. It ju- to me, it just felt, again, the word operatic, but it felt like uh, Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Like, it's like, a, it's it's a kind of, like, really graphic, disgusting, perverse kind of killings that occur, like, not just in TV shows and movies, but in operas and in plays mm-hmm. and in novels that are meant to send a message in some way. And so right. it, it's appropriate that this guy who is a fountain of lies and and somebody who just uh, twists the truth to serve his own purposes would have his lips torn off, you know, by this person that he's mischaracterized. I found it funnier when um, Hannibal ate one of the lips. Yeah. That little, like, <laughs> flash of him chewing on it. <laughs> and I don't even like Hannibal, the character, in yeah. other forms. I don't like him. I don't. I, I never was a big fan of Silence of the Lambs. I got, I've gotten in a lot of arguments with fans of that movie. I feel like it wants to have its cake and eat it, too, in a lot of ways. And I feel like it just didn't do anything for me. And the Ridley Scott Hannibal, I hated, hated, hated that movie. And Manhunter, I only like because Michael Mann directed it, and I'm a fan of his style. Mm-hmm. But the subject matter doesn't really do anything for me. But this show, there's something about the show that really spoke to me in a way that no other serial killer story has. Maybe because it feels like, to me, it's not, quote-unquote, really about serial killers like it's you know that's the subject but it's about other things somehow you wrote about how the show plays with reality and i think i appreciated how there are long sequences of conversations between two people but the setups for them are so interesting that we've talked on the show before about how to how directing can change the way you view just a simple conversation between two people and yeah i don't know how they do it so well that this just this back and forth part of it is it's you know, the they do it a lot. They do it a lot. They find really, really interesting original ways to photograph what are essentially just people talking. And, mm-hmm. and one, one of many examples is the scene where the Red Dragon holds Chilton hostage. And there are long sections of that where Chilton is in the foreground, like extreme frame left or right. And uh, Francis Dollarhide is in the background out of focus. And he stays out of focus. And nine out of ten television shows or movies would have been racking focus between them. Mm-hmm. And instead, they give us an occasional cut to a, an in-focus close-up of him. For the most part, he's this abstract presence, which really puts us in the shoes of Chilton. And they do a lot of that kind of thing. But what they do that's even more interesting is uh, they'll actually change locations in the middle of a conversation where we're in this yes. kind of like imagined, yes. you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the church, <laughs> you know? It's very disorienting. And all of a sudden, you feel like, oh, something's changed, but I'm not sure what. Wait, wasn't I just here? How am I here? Yes. I feel like and there's also a start where like the dialogue will pick up before the visual changes. And so it has that sensation of sort of coming to, right, where you can hear what's happening before you see where we really are. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so you're constantly like, wait, 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 is it, am I okay? Like that yeah, sort of yeah. disorientation and also the kind of, you're always on edge for like, is this really happening in the context of the show? Like, or is this going to be like revealed to be part of... Uh, fantasy or uh, hypothetical like is this is this like concretely happening Mm -hmm. in the show's universe yes and so I think like that kind of like skepticism moment to moment the show plays with that also by focusing I think on details that are not just the two people talking yeah like we can hear the dialogue and instead we have a very extreme shot of like some tchotchke in the room yes and also there are a lot of scenes or a lot of moments where a scene will cut to the same conversation occurring in a different location where it could not possibly occur the church over and over being one example. Mm-hmm. This is a church that we left behind when we left Florence, but it's a place that recurs, and there are a lot of different contexts for its recurrence. One of them is as a, is a sort of a safe space for Hannibal to fantasize. It's like it's his utopia in a way, mm-hmm. and it's the place that obviously where he felt most in repose, I guess, but also it shows up as a place where uh, Hannibal and Will Graham meet 
as soulmates, as equals, and it's almost like a, a little, almost a weird, like religious love nest in a way for the two of them, where they can be they can be awesome together. You know, it's just everywhere, and we're not supposed to go. Oh, they're suddenly back in Italy. This is this is giving us an insight into what they are feeling. Like they feel as if they would rather be there, or they feel as if they are there, and and it's that as if that's so important on this show. And that's why I, when I say that I think Hannibal is the future of scripted television, I don't mean that everything's going to be serial killers or it's all going to be based on novels or too any late. of that. <laughs> Probably too late, yes. Uh, what I mean is that freedom to express emotions, that freedom to express the story in unusual imaginative ways and ways that draw connections between things that seem dissimilar, that's what I'm talking about. In the way that a novel can jump back and forth between past and present and be in real space and then suddenly be in figurative space or we're back in the character's childhood and then suddenly we're back in the present again and nobody gets confused. We understand when we're reading a novel that a novel might do that. TV shows by and large haven't done that. Mm -hmm. They've done that in very, very measured doses, but Hannibal has done it more freely than any American show that I can think of, cable or broadcast. And the fact that it was on NBC is just still bizarre to me. Can we talk a little bit about that final Bedelia scene? Yes, yes. <laughs> but, well, Bedelia in general is such a beguiling, ambiguous character who I yeah. have been fascinated by. I don't quite understand her, but yeah. I mean, let's talk about the scene first, I guess. we The scene you're referring to is... The, the stinger, as they the call stinger, it. The stinger, which is when uh, you get a little bit of... Uh, a little bit more show after the credits. <laughs> <laughs> when they asked her to show it a leg, this is not what they meant. <laughs> yeah. So we've got her s uh, at a, this dinner sorry. table. With a little her. dad humor. <laughs> a little dad humor. Oh, this is already the Matt hour because we're talking about Matt's favorite stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Bring on the dad jokes. Mm. So it's the, very, it's the closing moments of the show. We see Bedelia sitting. It, like, It's not clear what her mental state is. At least it's not clear to me. Yeah. Um, and then we see this, like, elegantly prepared leg. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, like, pan down and we see that it's her leg. Her Can leg. I just say I didn't like that? I didn't yeah. like it. I didn't like it. It felt cheap. It felt cheap to me. It, was it doesn't make me, like, dislike the finale or dislike the show or anything, but I could have done without it. I felt like that, that final shot of them falling off the cliff and then the shot of the surf. That's the ending, and I, when you do that at the end, it just makes it seem trivial. I trivial. feel like it was his way of—it hints at Hannibal's return, where Hannibal might be the person sitting across the table from her. Right. It's not clear that anyone is sitting across the table from her, though. That's yes, true. but it, it, right? it, it like, leaves it open that maybe. Sure. He's but there was the also a part of me that thought it was like, oh, Hannibal's like sway over her is so extreme that she would like cut off, carry him. on that. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, her her stare was like so glassy, yeah, and and placid, and it was just like, ooh, that's not the look of someone who's got it together, you no. know. No. And so it just, you know, I mean, it was a very to me like ambiguous ending. Maybe it was less ambiguous to other people, but it read to me as like, oh, this is sort of what opens up a lot of other possibilities. One is she's having dinner with Hannibal. He survived the thing. Like they're good swimmers or whatever. One is she's so. Like swimmers, taken <laughs> yeah. over I love that by like Hannibal's. Like she's still so in his like hypnosis, basically that yeah. she would be doing this and you know like Miss Havishamming herself, kind of like I'm going to sit here until you show up, kind of thing. Like I don't. Now it's a verb. I, I don't know. Like I, I didn't have a super clear read on what yeah. we were supposed to take and from that. I don't think it was necessary 
Because it, the show didn't need that to leave open the possibility of Hannibal returning. No, and, and this is a show where, like, as much as any superhero movie, death is very reversible on this show. Like, nobody... I, people, like, just Will alone has sustained wounds that would, you know, yeah, kill I a freaking elephant, let have, alone a guy. How many times has his head been, like, cut into? Yeah, he's been, like... <laughs> just like, what is like, He's been stabbed, he's been gutted, he's been, you know, unbelievable. At one point, yeah, Hannibal's going to eat his brain, I mean... It's like, yeah, and he's fine. He's fine. <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, one of those Disney characters where you think they're dead and they show up with yeah. a cast on their arm. You know, yeah. it's like it's that kind of thing. Like you can't you can't take it too seriously. Yeah, I don't know about that final scene. I didn't like that. I just feel like, uh, for the most part, the series restrained the urge to package itself as a kind of a goofball, all all just a romp kind of thing like it didn't trivialize itself in the Mm -hmm. way that i think it was constantly at risk of doing and that was a rare lapse i think Um, i think the big lapse was them not kissing uh well so (laughs) they shot a take where they made out they they, were they not made out but they kissed their lips lips are very very close they're very very close but they should have just started making out he said that he might put it in the blu-ray extra footage yeah yeah yeah. we can dream they needed to be making out as they fell into the the bone zone like (laughs) if you're gonna go that far you may as well like just go all the way yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah that was like urgent in yes. that finale. I was like, uh, I don't like any of this, but I could come around if they just kissed. And then I was like, nah, they're not going to kiss. They'll come real close. You're yelling at the TV, kiss him! I, I'm making it sound like I don't like Hannibal. I respect Hannibal tremendously. I think it's a terrific show. It just isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the kind of stuff that it just doesn't appeal to me, but I certainly can see it as, like, from a critical perspective as being fantastic and interesting and certainly artistic and beautiful. I just need more kissing, I would say. Like, <laughs> a mental note. <laughs> More kissing, less guts, which is why this well, is not a show for me. Can we talk about the love story this season between Red Dragon and Reba? Yeah. Which I thought was one of the most compelling parts. Reba was just, you know, I, I again, I have no knowledge of the Red Dragon series and, you know, the novel, the literature. So all of this was new to me. But I thought, you know, the scene in particular between her and what's his name? Francis. Yeah. And the tiger was one of my favorite scenes yeah. from this this season that was great and that, yeah. com- that comes out of the book and, and it, there's a really great version of that in Michael Mann's film with Joan Allen and Tom Noonan who plays mm. Dollar Hyde in that version and it's classic Frankenstein like the entire yeah. thing like everything about it and Frankenstein God knows how many thesis papers are going to be written about this friggin show but certainly one about the Frankenstein influences is going to be written for sure the way that they photograph Tom Noonan in that movie makes him look like the the Boris Karloff incarnation of Frankenstein, and there's some touches of that in the way that they shoot Richard Armitage in this version. Mm-hmm. And then there's a constant references to Hannibal as a kind of Dr. Frankenstein for serial killers and this idea of the Frankenstein myth is sort of the foundational myth of everything that's been happening in modern civilization, that we're all these doctors and monsters, basically. Like, that's the relationship. I want to go back and watch it again because I feel like even after watching the entire thing a couple of times through, there are some there are some aspects of the foreshadowing and just the way the whole thing is put together that probably escape me. But I've had I've had similar reactions with a lot of the really great shows like Mad Men, The Sopranos, mm-hmm. Breaking Bad. Certainly did that, and I think this one did it too, really, really well. How much did this finale feel like closure to you? It felt like closure. It felt like closure to an extent that I don't as much as I would love to see it. I don't particularly feel like we need a fourth season. 
Mm-hmm. It felt it, this it felt, felt so much like the right ending it, to me. It didn't feel like it could possibly end better. No, I mean <laughs> I think we could get another ending that was equally wild and and or awesome and different from this ending, but I don't think it would be better. Mm-hmm. This feels like the right ending, and it's so like it's so like weathering heights. They're up on a cliff, and they're you know they're embracing, and they fall into the surf, and the whole thing is just so ridiculous and magnificent. And like, how can you possibly improve upon you it? Can't I don't know top how you it. can. You no. Can't. I don't know how you can. And I understand the urge to, to want more. And I am intrigued by this idea that Fuller laid out and, you know, kind of off the record with me, and I'm sure it's okay to say it now, of this idea of them kind of wandering around being basically partners in crime in some sick way. He didn't elaborate too much, but that's what I got out of it. But I don't think we need it. I feel like we're done. I feel like that part of it is done. Up next, we'll talk about Show Me a Hero, but first, a word from our sponsors. The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored this week by the new series Public Morals on TNT from creator Edward Burns. In the 60s, New York was called Fun City. Gambling, prostitution, after-hours bars. Someone had to manage the fun. Enter the cops of the Public Morals division. They were the landlords, and if you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. It's New York like you've never seen it and a story that's never been told. Watch the first four episodes on TNT On Demand. So HBO aired the final installments of David Simon's miniseries, Show Me a Hero, on Sunday night. If you haven't been following it, it's about a middle-class neighborhood's resistance to a housing development in Yonkers, New York. So in these final two episodes, we see Mayor, well, former Mayor Nick Wasisco's final fall from grace and his eventual suicide. So let's roll a clip. Hey, don't think I didn't see that, um, that uh, uh, report in the Herald Statesman yesterday. That investigation of the IDA you guys are doing, that secretary that stole some money. What about it? That's the last bullet, right? What, what, what do you mean? As mayor, I was chairman of the IDA, Jim. But I didn't steal shit. You look at my bank account, I didn't steal anything. Then don't worry. Yeah, I'm but I was still going to get investigated anyway. If I'd have beat Vinny, you would have come at me with that bullshit anyway. I get Vinny for you, but then you get me. Is that right? Nick? Huh? I don't have a pot to piss in, Jim. I didn't steal, but you want to take what's left of my reputation? You want to tear that down as well? Nick, you need to fuck calm you, down, Jim! Okay? And you told Zaleski I said fuck him too! You know, this is a good miniseries, but ultimately I felt like it was at arm's length and it was just so obsessed with its authenticity that it just kept reading phonier and phonier to me. Really? Yeah, I oh. know, because Matt loved it. I did. I know. I did. <laughs> I'm in the bag for Simon. I've liked pretty much everything he's done, even Generation Kill. I had completely the opposite reaction, and in fact, it reminded me of, and this is not a comparison that's necessarily going to inspire anybody to go out and watch it, but uh, this documentarian, Frederick Wiseman, makes these films about public institutions high school, basic training, and, and uh, Belfast, Maine, and, and so forth, domestic violence shelters. He's made two of those. And he just observes the culture of these institutions. And I feel like Simon is the fictional version of that. And that's, that's what I took this miniseries as being. It just happened to have these, you know, scripted situations and, and fictionalized characters. But I found the entire thing heartbreaking, and I felt like it only gathered force as it went along, particularly as the the plot lines between the people that the housing project was being created to cater to dovetailed with the stories of the council and the politicians and the people who were opposed to it. What did you think of Wasisco by the end? Did you feel any sympathy for him? 
My heart was broken for that guy. It was real to a degree that it clarified why David Simon has never really been popular. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I'm just watching this going like, of course, David Simon has never been taken into the, you know, into the bosom of the American public in a way that a lot of people have, because this is really bleak. This is really, really bleak. Like he did this. And it's a real story. He did so much good for so many people. But he was he was undone by his own ego and his motives are probably never that pure to begin with. Yeah. And he was suffering from depression and he killed himself. And all of these people are living in these homes and their lives are tangibly better as a result of him being in the world. And yet he's gone. And that's the way life is. And people don't really want to hear that's the way life is, is the punchline of a story. And I don't blame him, but I liked it. I, I don't know if it's necessarily something I want to watch over and over as comfort food, but I like it. <laughs> Ultimately, it was more in execution that that it got lost for me a little. Yeah. Um, but I think that David Simon in particular has this real ear for that like very thin fiber between like despair and psychosis mm. and that being like a really difficult mm-hmm. line to sort of explore. And if you're in like true despair, you do feel removed from reality at a certain point. And I think that we see that in some of his episodes of Homicide. We see that certainly like in points of The Wire yeah. that we have this feeling of like, is this really happening to me? Me? Like, ha- like how did this, right? And you just like, how did this kind of, like all this shit suddenly befall me, even though it's not sudden, right? Like we saw the whole process and none of it is, <laughs> right. like it's not right. a bolt of lightning, right? Like we, there's a lot of That's things true. that I hadn't thought of here. that, but yeah. But, and then we get this big moment and, and I think that like the, I thought Oscar Isaac was fantastic in that. I thought oh, that was like a really, really like, yeah. like textured and, and, and strong performance. Um, I'll see anything that guy's in. I don't care what it is. That's how good he is. <laughs> don't test it, Oscar Isaac. There's a Star TV Wars shows. movie coming out, yeah. so I guess we'll see. But, you know. um, but I, yeah, I mean, I thought the ending, you know, it is also true, right? So, right. There's, there's that powerful yeah. punch. Um, yeah. I think especially thinking about how it's so foreshadowed in in the first episode where we start in a graveyard, he's in distress, he's chugging Maylocks, his beeper is going, like, we already have this, like, very chaotic, I'm a disaster moment. We we know something awful is going to happen, we just don't know what. Yeah, and that's why I think, you know, it was a good show not to have Googled. Uh Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I'm glad I didn't know (laughs) anything about it. What did you think of the dialogue? I found that... In certain scenes, I thought it was so well written, and in others, I felt like it was using the dialogue to communicate certain information about inequities in this situation. Oh, it's definitely doing that. And I and the only reason that didn't jar me is because those are the kinds of conversations that I believe politicians in that situation would be having with each other. You well, know, especially if they're, the, like, ideologically opposed to the person they're talking to. I felt in the lower in the low-income neighborhood as well, though— like, yeah. it, it felt like they were like, well, you know, here's the line that tells you exactly what you should know about how bad things are, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's probably a failing. I, I, I would concede that. And that was, honestly, that was a failing in the wire. You know, it's, mm-hmm. been, it's been a problem with everything Simon has done. But in his defense, I would say I'm not sure what the better way to get that information across would be. Like, you could say visually, but sometimes they don't have the budget for that. Right. And also just the fact that they are broaching these subjects at all is kind of amazing to me. I guess the main reason I like this miniseries so much is, as I was watching it, I felt like I could breathe again in a way that I it sounds weird to say that, but like I'm so used to seeing on television and in movies these fantasy narratives that are mainly about wish fulfillment or that don't really have any connection to life. And all the characters on this show and all the characters in everything he's ever been involved with have been real people. They're real people. They're in real situations. 
the world that they live in is real, like it's a version of reality or it's trying to be. There are no superheroes, no monsters, no robots, no, you know, tough, snazzy private eyes, none of that stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. none of that. Like, none of the construct. He deprives himself of every construct that people are normally afforded in order to draw a mass audience. And uh, he's very deliberate about it. He's like a monk. He's like, I'm not going to speak now. Or like, you know, I'm not going to eat, you know, for a week because I'm fasting in the name of the Lord. Like, he's like a religious fanatic, the way he tells these stories. Mm-hmm. And, and even the way that he decides who to put on screen and how long to put them on screen. All these characters who are in the housing projects who are going to be ultimately beneficiaries of the housing projects are people who can't get into them because of things going on in their lives. He didn't have to put those people in there. You know, he didn't have to do it, and he did it, and it's a very awkward fit. It's very awkward. Like the first, you know, probably half of this miniseries, it feels like you're watching two separate miniseries from different points of view that are awkwardly glommed together. But in the end, I feel like it all comes together. And for me, at least, I'm watching it going, oh, yes, of course, that's why he did this. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not just him. It's, you know, it's a whole bunch of people. And Paul Haggis, I never thought much of Paul Haggis as a director until I saw this, but I thought he was, I thought this was really well-directed, very restrained and intelligent and, um, I liked it. A little too much Bruce Springsteen for my taste. Oh, I was into that. <laughs> I like Springsteen, but like they ladled they it laid on a little it on. thick. They a little did. thick, yeah. <laughs> I think we got a little more Winona towards the end, but I wanted I st- more. Winona. I wanted more. I wanted so much more. It just reminded me how much I love her and how amazing an yeah. actress she is, and yeah, how... and what bullshit that she's been drummed out of the public spotlight yeah. for so long because of that one scandal. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. I really, really loved the finale, but. There was the one scene with her on the phone with Wasowski's wife, implying that he had had an affair. and When he was on the road. Yeah, and I felt like that was a little cheap for her character. It felt a little dramatic in a way that I didn't appreciate as it much. It didn't feel cheap to me, considering what he'd done to her. That's true. I just didn't he see... Really, so he really threw her under the bus. Yeah. In a big, like, pretty much the most profound way you can. But Somebody also... who's your friend who's also on the city council with you. It felt like she was going to she was gonna win any, you know, like she, I think she knew at that point maybe that she was mm. going to win. Yeah. It was just, it felt like a low blow that I didn't, but I guess we didn't know her character well enough to know what she would do in that kind of situation. I found that completely believable. Okay. I did. I mean, just, it's a kind of petty, stupid thing that somebody would do in that situation. Although I haven't read the book, so I don't know if that's based on life. Yeah. Or if that's something that I they... don't know either. Uh, yeah. That was not a moment for me. I don't know. I just. Yeah. I just had a really tough time like, connecting to anything that was happening on the show. I just, I, like, it meets all these, like, sort of textbook requirements, and it's the kind of thing I would like in this, especially in the sense that it's very much, you know, I, and this is going to sound like I'm putting it down, but, like, it's TV for grown-ups, you know? We're talking about, like, grown-up problems. It's not a matter of shenanigans. The things that are, like, that are <laughs> yeah. problems are sometimes, like, broadly cultural, like, you know, endemic racism in America and, like, the the crippling paralysis of, of class and mobility, And I grew up not too far from Yonkers. This is an area I'm familiar with. I like stories about people who have real problems. You know, like I this is meets all of my general like, oh, yeah, I want shows about that. I just like couldn't. I don't know. I guess if nothing else, it convinced me that Alfred Molina should play Antonin Scalia in something. I was thinking that's so (laughs) bizarre that you said that. There were a number of Scalia moments. God, (laughs) that gave me the chills when you said that. Because I was actually, there were several moments where I looked at that guy and I went, it's Scalia. Oh, I will say my favorite part of Show Me a Hero was at the end when they were showing the real people side by side with the people who played them. That is my favorite thing in, like, that was the article we wanted to do on Vulture, (laughs) but we couldn't get rights to any photos. So, like, I, 
Yeah. It's like the only thing I liked about Argo is like the closing credits. Yeah, where it's like, yeah, and yeah. Here he is in that real sweater. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, yay. yeah. The, the production like, design details, like the costuming and all of that. So the fact that it's like they got the the width of the lapels exactly right. That is yeah. my favorite thing in in any movie based on a true story that that we somehow <laughs> show the side by side of the real either like this is the real photo or this is the real person or it's like yeah. you know we didn't just comb his beard like that to be funny. The guy really did that, <laughs> right? Like that stuff is like oh yeah, like this Peter Rieger. Yeah. Peter Rieger. Whoa, what a beard. That beard <laughs> what a beard. beard. That was some serious C. Everett Coop but then action. When we see Alfred Molina, I was like, oh, that doesn't really look that much like that guy. Like, that was, like, it was not, like, styled like him to mm-hmm. the same degree. So I was like, oh, they really were going for, like, a Scalia aesthetic. There were a lot of great little details that I have to assume came from some kind of reported record, like the way that um, Spallone, when he casts his vote, he will then defiantly sort of push, slap the microphone aside. Oh, for Afterwards, sure. like a complete showboat move. And you just know that that's his signature probably <laughs> yeah. in real life. Like, that's what I always do. People love it. Now that I'm talking about it, I'm like, oh, this part is also good. But I do think that that, that show and maybe David Simon in general has a real eye for diners. Like how sort of like <laughs> decrepit but safe like a, a scuzzy diner is. Dive bars too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just like like that whole uh, like everything's shiny but you don't know why. Like <laughs> like is this counter really the clean title of my or memoir really oddly. dirty? <laughs> like right? there's like, oh, is this like little metal creamer on the table like polished or covered in schmutz? Like like <laughs> right like that that sort of feeling. I think that that show hit that aesthetic polished pretty well. Or covered in schmutz. <laughs> yeah. Now on Game Show Network. <laughs> Yes. Oh no. no, I like that too. I liked and and it reminded me of one of my favorite American directors who never I feel got credit as a stylist because he wasn't terribly stylish was Sidney Lumet. And this is very much in the vein of something like A Dog Day Afternoon or Prince of the City or something along sure. those lines, mm-hmm. you know. It and had it's a real really, vintage feel to it. It very much did. And it's not just the production design, the clothes and all that kind of stuff, although they certainly did that in a major, major way. But just the vibe a bit and the way that it's photographed and, and, and the sort of the energy level, like it's attentive and alert, but not not in a huge hurry to impress you with anything. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a a critic who's on Twitter, and he said he felt oppressed by the praise for this show. And and I totally get that because I've been in that position, too. And it's like an echo chamber for critics on social media where you can feel like if a lot of people love something and you don't, that you're in the minority. But for me, the thing to remember in all this is, yeah, there are a lot of people who like this show, but most people have never heard of it and they're not going to watch it. And that's the plight yeah. of David Simon. He's like walking around, like whipping himself on the back like a medieval monk for the kinds of stories that he tries to tell. And there's something probably very irritating yeah. and off-putting and sanctimonious about that for some people, but I really like it. Yeah, like, I'm glad it, there's a guy like him out there who's doing that. It's not for everyone. And what I take is that it's good at what it's doing. You know, it's doing the best job at what it's trying to do. And I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who is in school for real estate development. He's like, I love Show Me a Hero because it's exactly what he wants to watch, you know, and for like what it's trying to convey, it is doing it in the best possible way. And whether you like it or not is subjective. That's how I felt about it. Yeah. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Next week, we'll discuss the finale of Mr. Robot and all the times that TV has really messed with our minds. Don't forget to email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. 
And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. 